Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 235, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode, are there teachers still getting rich on teachers' pay teachers? We'll look at some of the numbers. Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, what does it mean to educate a global citizen? We'll get some global perspective from an expert that's been doing just that with her students in China. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? Listen, I survived the flu <laughs> before Thanksgiving break. Right. Um, you know, I don't want to complain, but it's also an extremely busy time of the year as we are headed into the end of the fall semester, the end of 2022, and I am running like a chicken with my head cut off. <laughs> I, I, I want to hear about the flu real quick because you and I were texting and um, you were texting me before the break and you were like, I'm sick. And I thought, oh, she's got the flu. And sure enough, you did. And then on Thanksgiving Day, I got the flu and I haven't had it in over a decade. I don't know if it was a strain or if I'm a wimp or what, but it knocked me on <laughs> my butt. I don't know about you. Yeah, it, it, it took me like literally the entire week. And even after that, I still was dragging for a couple of days before I could just get back to normal. Um, I didn't have a cold or, um, you know, just a lot of nasally things going on, but I ached from head to toe. I had a fever. Mm-hmm. I felt nauseous and it was just rough. Like I'd been run over by a truck. I it was the same way. Bad fever Thanksgiving night. Um, the next day we were driving back from Tennessee. Uh, we stopped at a, a urgent care center in Birmingham. Thank goodness my wife made me do that. I was able to get on Tamiflu and they gave me some shots. So I felt better for a little bit. But yeah, like you said, I mean, it just kind of stuck with me. I'm on day seven right now. I did oh, go you're probably just starting to get I, I, day five. I was feeling a little better, but like I even had those days where like you would start to feel better and you're like, I'm good. And then I would like open a yep. jar and I would like, yep. I need a nap. Yep. You know, so it was it was something else. It was it was a lot of like the you would hear about how people were exhausted with COVID when I had COVID, which was the a later strain. I didn't I found it more like a cold. But this to me was that, you know, bad fever knocked you down, struggle to get going again. Mm-hmm. And I actually yep. went running today and I'm on the struggle bus. So um, <laughs> I like that. The struggle bus. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Yep. So anyhow, but I'm glad we're both uh, kind of back in the swing of things. I know it's a tough time of year for you. Um, I've got especially a- missing an entire week of work. Yes. Right. I know. Uh, I've got a story today kind of bringing something, dusting it off that I wanted to talk about. I didn't even know if it's really even utilized anymore, but Ed Search had an interesting article about uh, teachers pay teachers. Uh, you're familiar with this, of course? I am. And uh, is, is it still getting used a lot as far as you know? It is. <laughs> you sound <laughs> like a, a skeptic of teachers pay teachers. Well, I am a skeptic because you don't know if it's evidence-based or research-based. Is it standards aligned? Is it just cute 
but doesn't really have any meat or rigor to it. Mm -hmm. And when you're an inexperienced teacher, you don't know how to analyze a tool or, you know, an activity to see if it meets the high standards that we have for rigorous um, instruction. And so that's just my concern. What I recommend teachers do is try to stick to their district curriculum, use the activities that should already be embedded. And for the state of Mississippi, we have a scaffolding document that helps us understand the depth of knowledge, the rigor that's needed in order for students to perform well, basically, uh, mastering the standard or performing at a high level on an assessment. Now, there's a lot of cute things on there if you're just looking for cute charts and templates, but you got to be very careful. Yeah. So the, the headline of the article is, why did we stop hearing about the teachers making millions on Teachers Pay Teachers? And I think- well, why did we? And I think, well, combining some of what you're saying and your your tone and feel for the application, as well as some of what they included in this article, I think it might shine a little light on it. It wasn't quite a clear answer, but they did interview the CEO of the company. But let's just kind of give a little background for- those that I know all our listeners are familiar with it, but let's talk about when it started. It was founded in 2006. So it's been around, mm-hmm. uh, we're pushing uh, 14 to 16 years, right? Maybe almost yes. 17 years. Um, and uh, around 2012, so about six years into it, uh, teachers pay teachers reveal that they had a teacher on the platform that had earned a million dollars in profits, right? And then so mm-hmm. like the news picked up on it and it kind of, you know, was a big marketing, I think, event for it, the fact that, you know, teachers can be millionaires. And then they said as of 2015, there were 12 millionaires thanks to Teachers Pay Teachers, right? So Mm -hmm. that's mid, uh, middle of the decade there. Now, today they say more than 300 teachers can claim that status, having earned at least a million dollars in profits from their online stores. Um, Well, that's great. But, and it says in the past year, more than 185,000 people have made just some type of sale um, on Teachers Pay Teachers. But what was interesting was in the interview, like the CEO, he didn't really want to talk about like teachers making millions anymore. Any guess why? Like they they didn't really give a good answer, but any thoughts on why? I don't know. The only thing I can think about is that perhaps the CEO isn't a former educator and understands that not everything that's being sold on that platform is of quality. That's kind of what my, my take as well. I think that's a really good answer um, from you there. I mean, and, and he's kind of looking at it. He's trying to position as, look, Teachers Pay Teachers is not meant to make educators millionaires, but it it might be a, a better alternative than having to go out and make a little extra money like driving an Uber or, um, you know, do, at least you're doing something that's in your skill set is his argument. Well, let's be clear. If there are multiple teachers making millions on that platform, what do you think that CEO is making? Oh, no doubt. Because I, I don't know what their share is, but they, I'm sure they've done just fine, you know, as a company, yep. um, you know, basically. But and then again, they, they did provide a service. They offered a um, conduit to connect mm-hmm. teachers with teachers. But like you said, it gets a little messy out there. And sometimes I guess educators could take the easy route and not really grab a, a, a great product um, on the site. And I would like to say that I'm sure that there are some high quality um, instructional materials somewhere on that platform. Mm-hmm. But again, it takes experience and knowledge to understand what is evidence-based, what is standards aligned to use in your classroom. 
the um, author of the article actually interviewed several educators who have had some success on the platform and mm-hmm. and some that didn't. And it was just kind of like, you know, what's the magic formula? And it's it's a little bit like trying to have the magic formula on YouTube or, or Instagram or something like that. You can't quite figure it out. Like, why is my stuff getting grabbed? But some of the teachers that have had some, some success have um, attributed it to the fact that they would create stuff that is an unmet need. Um, and, and that was kind of their tip. If you're going to try to do this, try to mm-hmm. find something like if, you, if you're Googling and you're like, I can't find a good, you know, sheet that would explain this yeah, lesson. Yeah, a chart. Right. Yes. That would be kind of, all right, well, let me put that on Teachers Pay Teachers because there's a need for it there. So um, that was kind of their suggestion. But um, do, you, do you think that there's or do you know of anybody who's had uh, like made a lot of money from this on a personal level? I do not know anyone who's made a lot of money um, on the personal level level and professionally, I'll be honest, we steer our teachers away from that. Um, We don't want our teachers pushing worksheets and lots of cute activities that don't have any depth or rigor to them. So we really steer our teachers away from it. Have you seen, and you mentioned something, I think just off the top there, but have you seen a better platform? Because like the, at the end of the day, you want your teachers to share worksheets with each other, right? Like the the people. Well, we don't really want to use worksheets and that's, That is the point, is we don't want to push worksheets. We don't want to see that. We want to see hands-on, inquiry-based, engaged activities going on in the classroom, which to me provides a longer-lasting learning outcome than lots of worksheets. What do you think the best platform is for sharing ideas amongst teachers? Like, is it... Oh, there's so many of them out there. I mean, for sharing ideas, but you see, you got to remember, we're we're not really talking about sharing ideas. On Teacher Pay Teacher, what we're talking about is the easy access to purchasing materials that may or may not be aligned to your district's curriculum. Now, to share ideas, I think that is very important. Collaborating, sharing ideas of effective practices in order to improve instruction and ultimately improve student achievement. I think that's critical. That's why professional learning communities are so important because it sets aside a time for teacher to teachers to do just that. But I don't think that we're actually sharing when we're just purchasing something quick and easy to reproduce and pass out. All right. So say, I'll say it this way. Teachers pay teacher again, started 2006. saw a lot of success in the, in the teens uh, of those years. Has something stepped up that not necessarily does the same thing as teacher pay teachers, but does what you you would prefer to see, which uh, allows to share resources with other educators out there. Well, I guess we could mention things such as Pinterest. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of out there ideas out there on Pinterest. Um, some of them uh, could lead to websites that have high quality material. But oftentimes, again, it's a lot of cute items that are easily accessible for teachers. And I'm not knocking that because when you think about decorating your classroom or establishing um, instructional bulletin boards, you know, there's a lot of great material. But when it comes down to trying to provide high quality instructional material to students, we just have to be very careful. Gotcha. Well, I'm curious to see how long. I mean, I, do you think that it's here to stay? Teachers pay teachers, or do you think it's? Oh, kind of almost- absolutely. Okay. I think it'll always be around. 
Um, I think there will probably be many other um, plot platforms to be established, um, but we just have to make sure that we're training our teachers and sh- teaching them to identify high quality instructional material. I hear you. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. Um, are you ready for today's bright idea? I'm excited about it. Let's go. What does it mean to educate a global citizen? Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is going to offer us a unique perspective on just that. Today, we're speaking with Brantley Turner. She is the Dwight School's Director of East Asian Education. She spent the past 15 years educating in China, uh, including some time at the Shanghai Shibao Dwight High School, which was the first independently run Chinese-U.S. cooperative high school in China. Brantley, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you so much, Nick. Great I, to be here. Did I pronounce everything right there? That I felt like I was trying hard, but I don't know if yes, I got it right. Yes, you sounded very good. Okay, great. great. All right, so I want you to help us kind of draw a picture for our viewers. I, I said kind of a mouthful there. I said um, your school was the first independently run Chinese-U.S. cooperative high school in China. What does that mean? Yes, absolutely. Complicated and confusing. So in a nutshell, China, as we might understand, is a very regula- regulated uh education environment. Mm -hmm. So for Chinese nationals uh, to be educated with international curriculum, they have to be in special schools. And a couple years ago, uh, Shanghai started looking at how they could meet those regulations and start to provide more opportunities for Chinese citizens to have access to international education. And so using a policy called cooperatively run education law, which is where you partner Mm -hmm. a foreign uh, school with a local school, and create a, a joint venture school. So in a nutshell, that's what it is. But Chibao Dwight to date is the only school of that kind that is a cooperation between China and the US to get started in China. Okay, so if I'm hearing you right, like basically most students in China don't really learn a whole lot about maybe the US and, and just their main school, but yours allows you to teach them more in other countries beyond the US? What I would say is they actually, in Chinese national education, the state system, they have global education. They have English language instruction, compulsory subject. But actually accessing international curriculum, so whether that's Common Core or, uh, in my case, international baccalaureate, some do Cambridge, the British system of curriculum, that is regulated. So you can't just take a foreign curriculum and put it into a Chinese national school without special permission. Okay. But in, in, in your world, at this particular school that you spent some time at, were you allowed to have a little bit more free will there or no? We did. So I'm a, I founded the school, actually, with the Chinese partner. Okay. And our objective was to provide uh, international baccalaureate diploma program curriculum. That's a thing for anyone checking online. That's just IBDP. And that's an, a global curriculum that is not uh, country-based, right? So students all over the world can access that curriculum if their school is an IBDP world school. And so we were able to run the IB completely authentically, right? Taught in English with a range of ch- subject choices by both international and local teachers. But our students additionally had to complete four national requirement subjects. And so that is how uh, the we were able to get regulatory approval I will say that, um, you know, it was a wild ride getting started since we mm-hmm. went first and really putting putting together what that could look like. 
but have wonderful students. And, and just the key thing is we're preparing 100% of our graduates to go abroad outside of China for higher education, to go to university outside China. And that's fantastic. And you, you describe it as a wild ride. And I, I don't mean to try to encapsulate your, your life in 30 seconds here, but it, it sounds super intimidating to do what you did because for our listeners, you, you grew up in the United States, but then I guess you, you moved to China and at some point later in your life, uh, probably because your parents, you've been there for, I guess, over 20 years, you speak fluent Mandarin, um, but still to kind of go to the Chinese government, uh, at least to me as an outsider, seems so intimidating to be like, hey, here's what we want to do. We want to change the way you guys teach. Like, am I, do I have that wrong in my right. mind? Right. No, I mean, you know, absolutely put that way. It does sound like kind of um, something un- impossible. But I think the way to understand is that there's a recognition in China that not all students fit into the national education examination track for university. There's a pathway, right? They, they, there's only one way to enter universities in China. It's an examination called the Gaokao or the higher test. And so they do need to provide some alternatives and different pathways mm-hmm. because the future of connectivity globally depends on it. Now, that's not to say that there's universal support for that type of thinking, but there are narrow windows of opportunity to create create you know, unique schools that fulfill some alternative needs. So I had a great partner. I work really well with a public high school from Shanghai. But what I would just just emphasize for the listeners is that we were only a high school, grades 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. because uh, China's three-year high school. The students did have to take examinations to enter. So this was selective based on the national test for high school. But the reason we could only be high school is that education is more highly regulated in grades one through nine, because that's mandatory education for the country. You must attend school by law through grade nine in China. But high school is not mandatory because some students go to vocational schools for the high school track. Some come to high schools that are tracking university. So it's about reading policy, understanding policy, and and looking for opportunities. And and so just for the audience, you know, I do come at education from kind of a non-traditional background. Mm -hmm. So potentially a way to understand it is that China was what I studied in college. I studied East Asian studies. I did study Mandarin. I've had a lot of different jobs in China and I can read and write as well. So again, it's a moment in time. I had an opportunity. I met some really interesting people. I had great support from the U.S. institution, Dwight Schools, to to take on this project. And it's just 600 students. That's the scope. Um, And we, we got to do something pretty unique. 600 is a lot too, though. So again, uh, kudos on that accomplishment. What would our listeners be surprised about that is in ways that the U.S. schools and Chinese schools are similar? So, you know, on the similar side, right, working with high school students is a very special moment in time because you really have students from around 15 years old to 18 years old. They're in that final stage of becoming adults, and I think there's a lot of universal characteristics um, that, that are happening with young people at that point in their lives. Let's think about communication with parents, right? As a principal in that context, the number of conversations that I've had with young people having communication challenges with their parents or guardians, you know, dealing with wanting to get more, more autonomy, more independence and, and struggling against that. And also just the stress and the pressure that young people, particularly students that are tracking to university, right? They 
they're under pressure. And and I think that's universal. What is something that would we'd be surprised about that is different? In many schools in the United States, students are grade oriented, but certainly not all. And in China, grades matter a lot. And I would talk to my faculty who are from all over the world about saying, let's not negate people where they are culturally in terms of their own sense of achievement and where that comes from, like where that young person is being validated. And I feel like a really relentless commitment and focus on academic achievement to the detriment of other things, for example, sports, which would be much stronger in many contexts in the US than they would be in China. Mm-hmm. I think it's more siloed. It's a narrower view of what one aims to get from education. Do you happen to watch 60 Minutes frequently? From time to time. It was hard in China, okay. but well, over my lifetime, I have. Right. Well, there was a recent report. This was like a week or two ago. And um, it was it was about TikTok and TikTok, Chinese company, oh, but yes. huge here in the United States, of course. And and basically, the, the guest on 60 Minutes was saying that the, the Chinese government and the company that basically owns TikTok serves up mm-hmm. a different TikTok to the students in China than the TikTok it serves to the United States. In their version of TikTok, if you're under 14 years old, they show you science experiments you can do at home, museum exhibits, patriotism videos, and educational videos. And they also limit it to only 40 minutes per day. Now, they don't ship that version of TikTok to the rest of the world. So it's almost like they recognize that Technology is influencing kids' development, and they make their domestic version a spinach version of TikTok, while they ship the opium version to the rest of the world. The version served to the West has kids hooked for hours at a time. The impact, Harris says, is predictable. There's a survey of preteens in the U.S. and China asking, what is the most aspirational career that you want to have? And the U.S., the number one was influencer. Social media influencer. And in China, the number one was astronaut. Again, you allow those two societies to play out for a few generations, I can tell you what your world is going to look like. So I didn't catch 60 Minutes, but I'm very uh, familiar and comfortable with talking about TikTok. Uh, in Chinese, it's called Douyin. Mm-hmm. So let's try, to, let's try to do this in a, in a way that's you know, easy to process. Number one, the question I would say that's on everybody's mind is, should TikTok be banned in the US? Is that a conversation we should be having because of the reasons that you say, mm-hmm. where it's not regulated, it's uh, any access, any types of points of view and opinions can be coming at young people through TikTok or people of all ages. So I would say the question we need to be asking ourselves is, in what way should TikTok be regulated? And this is complicated because when we think about environments in which information access is regulated or, dare I say, censored, that raises a lot of questions, particularly in the United States. And I think important questions about how comfortable we are with any form of of anything that could be construed as censorship. So what is that boundary between regulation and censorship? China is a heavily censored media landscape. And if you're living in China, just, just so everybody understands, if If you're an American citizen like me in China or any Chinese national citizen, you do not have free access to Google, to YouTube, to Facebook, to Twitter, to any of the platforms that we would potentially be going on daily. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the reality there. And that reality extends to how heavily TikTok or Douyin is regulated in China. And going on 
TikTok, as in what we are seeing outside of China on TikTok, you cannot easily access TikTok in China. You、mm. can access local Douyin. So I think we're at a reckoning point with technology in general and access and questions around what is our regulatory landscape. I will not in any way advocate for saying we should be blocking systems like I've just explained happens in China. But I think that conversation needs to be awareness. So when we talk to young students about surveillance and access to information and access to data, you're having a very different conversation if you're looking at European data privacy laws, U.S. data privacy laws, and and data privacy laws in, in countries like China. And I think we need to be increasing awareness for our citizens and increasing awareness for young people about how their data may or may not be being used. Whether that is by ByteDance, TikTok's parent company,、mm. or whether it is by、um, our own, you know, daily daily systems that that we're on here, and so I have,、uh, I think absolutely, TikTok is terrifically effective at pushing content to young people that we need to look closely at and think about regulating. Um, and I, but I think that across the board, I think we really need to be looking very carefully at data privacy in general for U.S. citizens、uh, throughout all tech systems. Yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of deep discussions that we could have around there. Do students understand that things are being censored? Do they know what they don't know? <laughs> I would say, in general, it's I. I would argue many of us don't know what we don't know, right? And so, certainly, in as much as We have our sources of information and, and areas of getting information that we feel comfortable with as individuals. Of course, the majority of the landscape of information that folks are accessing in China is domestic. So there's very little discussion around saying, you know, what what do they not know, quote unquote.、Um, I don't want to get off track too much with the TikTok discussion. I want to kind of dive into the the idea of educating. Global citizens, what were you trying to convey to your students in terms of being a global citizen, and were they wanting to be a global citizen, or was that something that you had to bring to the table? Well, certainly, if choosing our school, students were、uh, already taking that step, right, to think about going abroad for for college. So. That was baked in, right? They, we would we didn't have students. You could argue that sometimes when you're 15 and your parents are making a decision for you, maybe you haven't bought into that、uh, way of thinking as much. But certainly on that track, I mean, when you have to take a full curriculum in your non-native language、mm -hmm. in English, I mean, that's a serious commitment. So I would say students were already actively making that choice when they entered. But let's think a little bit about a framework for for thinking about what do we have to be doing to help. Support global citizenship education, right? Or just what? Just looking at UNESCO's definition, which is commonly used, is really thinking about empowering learners of all ages to assume active roles locally and globally in building more peaceful, tolerant, inclusive, and secure societies. That's a UNESCO global citizenship education definition, and I resonate with that definition. But Then you've got to dig in and kind of look at the different domains of learning, right? Because there's the cognitive piece, and we can talk a lot about content about the world, right? Meaning that content is content, but that's only one part of it. And and you've really got to use the skills、um, in terms of how you apply your knowledge and content. I think that's the important kind of cognitive domain. But there are also social emotional domains and behavioral domains. 
right? How comfortable is any one person existing outside of their own cult- culture and, and working to function outside of their own culture? Mm-hmm. And that's really hard, right? And I know that firsthand. I mean, just so your audience understands, I mean, I'm not Asian by background, by heritage. I didn't have any exposure at all to Asia until my parents moved to Hong Kong when I was 17. I was going to college. It just opened up a whole new opportunity for me. And it wasn't easy at the beginning, right? I stayed in China for so long because it remained challenging and fun and interesting, but it certainly wasn't ever as though I was more comfortable there than I am in my home city of New York, right? So I think that thinking about how you behave in different environments and also how we help young people be respectful and peaceful individuals is is super important. I'm I'm not trying to insult a lot of the, our students here in the United States, but I feel like a lot of kids, um, I have teenagers, they, they probably aren't thinking, well, you know what? I really need to have a better understanding of Chinese culture and, um, you know, or any other foreign country's culture. You know, we, we kind of have this air of, you know, U.S. rules and, you know, people will learn English and so forth. Is it is it not like that in China? I mean, is, is China, the, are the students very much like, well, I want to learn about the United States and I, w- I want to open up a line of communication? Please set me straight. I It's not so straightforward, right? I, I don't know that young people are all sitting around thinking, oh, I really want to learn English or I really want to learn about the outside. But at the same time, there's a lot more dialogue around what's happening globally than I tend to experience here. So there's a lot bigger discussion, right? China's gone from extraordinarily economically disadvantaged to a very powerful economy, Mm -hmm. very intertwined and interconnected economy in in the last 30 years. And every individual in China has been affected by that. So it's certainly much more front and center, right? Many people, millions and millions, a billion people in China understand what it used to be like. And so that connectivity to the outside has been a large part of China's advancement. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that is completely lost on, on, on everybody there. Now, it could be lost on some, certainly. And I think that what I, what I would caution anybody, anyone here, I don't want to in any way say that our young folks should be frightened or feel that they, uh, you know, if they don't understand China, they, they don't have a future. But at the same time, not having an increased understanding of the outside, to me, is a huge risk. For the, for the United States. It's, it's so important that we have better understanding of how other economic relationships function, how other geopolitical relationships function, because isolation is an extreme disadvantage to the U.S. You having taught in China um, and having gone through the school system yourself in the United States, and I know it's hard to, to sit from where you were and preach to our listeners who are educators. But I mean, what would you say to a U.S. educator when it says, all right, here's how you could really help in, in creating a, a better global citizen in your classroom? Like what, what bits of advice could you give us? I think first of all is just caring about it, right? One of the, one of the wonderful things about the United States is resources. We don't have the restrictions and I would caution certainly to, teachers who are working in schools where there's pressure to be restrictive on resources. That's, that's another flashpoint that, that is concerning to me. But I think that 
looking to look at the world through concepts and to think about the way in which we understand concepts as they apply to other places. So uh, concepts around power. And, and certainly, I mean, I may be speaking a little bit more to the high school level, but concepts around, let's say you're teaching a grade three unit on space, right? And you're focused on the Mars rover and, uh, you know, rare earth metals and things that we might find on Mars. Well, then at the older levels, you know, looking at that and saying, okay, well, who else is looking to mine Mars or who else is trying to access uh, global resources, right? Be they in the ocean, be they in space, be they in other countries, you know, and starting to weave that in. You don't have to be an expert on understanding that to make those connections through both concepts, things like, again, power, uh, sustainable development, uh, human rights, sovereignty, or looking at uh, ways in which we are not alone in a domestic race for, some, uh, sorry, in an international race for resources, as an example, right? We are not alone in thinking about how to manage the internet. We are not alone in thinking about how to look at pollution or global poverty or displaced people through flooding or other natural disasters, right? These are global global conversations that we need to be having. And I think that I would just want to empower any teacher sitting in the United States to not feel that they themselves have had to have access to these kind of overseas experience to be asking those questions or inspiring students to ask questions about, you know, what it means to be living in an interconnected world. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of real world discussions that can happen. I mean, you take chip shortages, for example, which impact our car stereos to our cars to uh, iPhones or, or whatever, you know, just the whole supply and demand. I think there was a, a really good lesson to be have about, you know, global politics and, and supply chains and so forth. No question. I mean, what I would what I would say is, regardless of trying to understand the political landscape, that as soon as any of us see on the news here in the United States that something's happening in China, we should be immediately mapping that to supply chain slowdown. The the current date today that we're recording this is November thirtieth, twenty twenty two, and I feel like um, I would be remiss if I didn't try to get your input, your take on a lot of the headlines that we're reading right now, which are regarding um, some protests that have kind of uh, popped up, at least according to the headlines that we're reading over in China, um, which are related to, I think, just a frustration about the COVID lockdowns that have been taking place there. Um, first, I will say is, from what you've seen, you're currently in New York, you've probably seen some of the headlines in Western media. Um, is that an accurate portrayal of what's happening there right now? Are, are there protests everywhere? Are these like little tiny pockets in, in major cities? So again, I'm in, in the same situation as many in that I'm, I'm outside of China and just watching the news or, or seeing things that I'm being sent and, and looking at the headlines. And of course I do, I'm closely connected to many friends, community members in, in China and so have potentially more access to understand. And I can understand the Chinese language that's being shared along with those videos. And I would say, I'm not, I haven't processed fully yet, but what I would share is I would apply a lens to any video feed I'm getting or any images that I'm getting of a you know, critical thinking lens to say, okay, what could be going on here, right? How many people are protesters? How many people are police officers, how many people are people on the sidelines kind of looking at what's going on. And I don't feel like I can extend 
enough analysis to say, okay, this is large scale and, you know, happening everywhere. It certainly has been happening in some college campuses and some, some big cities. But what I would say, and I know to be true, having spent time myself in lockdown in the, in, in the mainland, mm-hmm. is that people are very, very tired. And actually, you know, it takes me back to the early days of the pandemic when I was outside of China because it was Chinese New Year in 2020 when China first shut down. And I flew back in. I had a school to run. I mean, I had responsibility. And I went back to China based on my anecdotal evidence of not having any friends who had COVID and Shanghai didn't have, you know, hospitals filled or anything. This is January 2020. And, you know, I think about how important global citizenship and the and empathy is and caring for others, right? And and thinking about how we as human beings should have some universal values of wanting everyone to thrive and everyone to do well. And so when I look at what's going on now, you know, my heart kind of goes back to that place of any sign of suffering or any sign of struggle really, really makes me feel sad. Mm-hmm. You know, and I and I watched, I was in China for three years during the pandemic, unable to leave, um, and ultimately left in July. But I watched many events around the world with with deep, deep sadness throughout the, the, the last three years. And I think that's my default mode, right? Not just because I have a connection or speak the language of a certain country, but but anything around the world that that indicates sort of the suffering and, and sorrow of others is something that I feel very moved by. And I think that's why I came to education. That's why I've had experiences abroad and hope to have experiences in the US. I am teaching global politics this semester in New York um, and, and applying some of that learning to it. But I think that's my default. And what what always troubles me is when we look at things and think what's bad for another country or another group of people is somehow good for us. And I use that us universally, right? In this context, it could be saying, okay, what's trouble in China could be good for the United States. I just, the world's not so simple. And again, interdependent and interconnected means that they're ripple effects. And I don't know how things will turn out, right, with the current situation. And maybe by the time this airs, we'll have a lot more clarity right. on where things are going. But at, at, for me, it's it comes to people. It comes down to the level of individual people and how they may be affected and how they're struggling. And I think certainly the pandemic's been brutal everywhere, and it's been brutal in China, maybe in slightly different ways. But um, it's really hard to see. It's hard to watch. I got to be honest. You have this very empathetic, worldly view about it. And I like that. Um, I would say, you know, I I think a lot of that probably comes from you've been there, you know, these people. Um, And how do we get the rest of the world to think like that? How do we get our students to think that way to have more empathy? I mean, is is connecting classrooms through the internet a thing that can happen with another classroom in China? Is that something that you'd recommend? Or are there other strategies? (laughs) I think connecting classrooms, and certainly that's hard, and I know that that comes down to individual teachers, but I am ultimately a believer in people to people. And I do think we've seen a bit of a pullback. Of course, the pandemic has resulted in lack of ability to physically connect, but we have seen increased opportunities to virtually connect. Mm-hmm. And and to me, it, it does come down to that people to people level. And any experiences that we can create for young people that we can encourage, I worry a lot about silos, and I worry a lot about 
tribal thinking that results in different people who don't get along not talking to each other. And honestly, I would apply that same lens to being back in the US. I want so desperately for people who uh, are not comfortable speaking with each other about different differing views to realize how dangerous that is. And and again, it's very easy when we draw that line with China. And I'm sure some of your listeners will be turned off by the fact that I spent so much time there. I completely accept that. I, I don't I don't expect anybody to 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 who has a very different point of view than I do to accept that I even lived in China. I, I, I accept that. But I also know how important it is that we keep dialogue going. And I think we can map some of that disconnect onto our own reality now in the US. And, and I'm just trying to, in all the interactions that I have with people, recognize that there's people who have different points of view than I do here in the US. And if we don't talk and we don't keep talking, that's the worst outcome. So being comfortable with uncomfortable conversations is another very big part of understanding how other people think. I would rather know how other people think, even if I disagree. Right. Absolutely. Because then I know. Yeah. And so, so I would start with that, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> I would start with that. I love that. Um, I was not aware of, I don't know how many schools, I guess you call it the Dwight schools. Like there's several throughout the world. Correct. Is that right? Um, Correct. I, we have seven, seven schools. Okay. So that's really cool. I was not aware that that was even a program. And, and from what I understand from us talking before we press record is you are now going to be headed in the future to Vietnam. I am. So I left Shanghai in July and handed over my job, the American principal at Chi Bao Dwight to a wonderful fellow American from Richmond, Virginia, Robbie Shields, fantastic steward of our mission. And uh, he's doing great. Uh, and next up for me is primarily working on opening Dwight School Hanoi, which adds the seventh school to our Dwight network of schools. And it's you know, really humbling to step into another culture that I don't know anything about and I don't speak the language and I have a lot to learn, but I've been with Dwight schools uh, part-time and then part-time since 2008. I became full-time in 2013, but it's been a great opportunity. Dwight schools, just in background, was the first K through 12 international baccalaureate world school in the US. So very dedicated to internationally minded curriculum over the last 50 years at Dwight. And that's one of the reasons that I've stuck with Dwight and, and really appreciate the opportunities that I've had to be part of an American institution 150 years in New York City, but with this opportunity to travel abroad and particularly to focus on Asia, which has been my kind of area of study and expertise, I guess you would say. I mean, what do you hope to bring to, to Vietnam? First, I, I hope to bring openness and, and an ability to learn. Uh, you all may understand, you know, as we kind of look at that region, that there's a lot of interesting uh, understanding to be done about Vietnam in the sense that Vietnam is working to continue to move forward with the way in which people relate to the country and what they understand about the country. They were obviously in a very different economic and, uh, situation in the 1980s as they came out of the Vietnam War. And which is called the American War in Vietnam, by the way. Um, and so I think that it's it's just a new opportunity to learn and to have a place to check my own bias and my own understanding. And what I'm hoping to bring is, again, educational opportunities for Vietnamese nationals. It's less restrictive than China. So there are regulations, but um, the, the school that we are working on developing there will be a pre-K through 12 school. And uh, Vietnam's a much smaller country than China, obviously, smaller country than the U.S., but plays a really important geopolitical role in, in that region. So just a chance to connect and be a bridge in, but also to be a bridge out. 
for, for young Vietnamese to come outside of Vietnam for new opportunities in higher education as well. Well, I got to say, I've just really enjoyed our conversation. I feel like you've got a perspective that we normally don't bring on the show. Um, in fact, I'd love to hear more about how things are going in Vietnam in the future once you get settled over there and, and kind of talk to you again, if that's even possible. For the, sure. The, happy to. Yeah, that, that would be great. And uh, I would say if somebody wants to kind of keep up with you and, and follow your adventures, I mean, do you post about this on Instagram or Twitter or anywhere? Well, I will say I'm much less of a social media user than potentially I should be, but LinkedIn is really the best place to connect. So it's Brantley Turner on LinkedIn. I'm probably easy to find there working with the Dwight schools and people should feel free to send me a message or connect there and stay in touch. But um, as I said, I'm a little circumspect about a lot of social media and uh, my data. So I don't TikTok and I don't post on Twitter. But I'm happy to have dialogue with anyone who's curious about reaching out. And if you want advice about what it means to go abroad and teach anywhere in the world, I'd also be happy to connect on that. That's fantastic. And I think a lot of us are probably uh, a little bit envious of the fact that you're not necessarily everywhere on social media. And a lot of us wish we could be there ourselves too, but we find ourselves there anyhow. Um, Well, look again, uh, Brantley, it's been fantastic having you on the show. Are you ready for our pop quiz? I am ready. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Reading. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Global perspectives, understanding others. What does every child deserve? Someone who cares about them. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Too much information. (laughs) What's the best gift to give an educator? Time. Which teacher changed your life? Really too many to count. I was touched by every teacher in a positive way. Um, I can't even single out one. What's a book that you've recently read, love, and want to recommend to our listeners? I recently read a book called In Praise of Walking. I love to walk. It's my release, my meditation, my exercise. So Shane O'Mara, In Praise of Walking. I'm going to look that one up because my wife and I are also both big believers in walking as a, like you said, form of meditation or stress relief. So uh, that's really cool. What'd you like about it? It's sort of a manifesto for how we as humans evolved to this unique ability to be a biped and walk like we can. And a lot about brain chemistry and what happens in your brain. And, you know, look, life doesn't always have to be so complicated, right? Drink water, get enough sleep, walk, love somebody. Yeah. No, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Um, all right. Again, uh, you've been listening to Brantley Turner. Uh, Brantley, we really appreciate you coming on the show on Class Dismissed. Uh, it's been such a fascinating perspective you have. And, and please join us again sometime in the future. I will, Nick. Thank you so much again. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.